I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is death. With me in the studio today is David Thompson. David is a lawyer with a specialty in elder law regarding issues that uh, more commonly confront senior citizens. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So, um, you know, death, hardly the most uh, exciting topic, but the truth is it, it confronts us all. But that doesn't mean it's a subject that we should shy away from just because it is somewhat terrifying. Um, even just sitting here talking about death seems somewhat you know, morbid and, and an unfortunate thing to talk about. So why do you think we should be talking about death? Well, I think this is a particularly interesting time. I mean, over the decades, there's been so much uh, progress in terms of medicine and what it can do to um, improve your quality of life and also to prolong it. And it's worth noting that, you know, up until probably the last 30, 40 years, death was something that came relatively quickly and without much warning. I mean, I, I recall reading recently, it was just a list of how 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 various U.S. presidents had passed away, and it was really striking how many of them had an infection uh, that took took their lives in you know two or three days. Uh, and nowadays, death is more likely to be something much more drawn out over weeks and months and and sometimes years. Um, so that's that's something that's uh, we're thinking about. And then I think the other thing is that death has really gone from being an event to being a process, uh, and even more specifically, I would say, a narrative. And the dying person is the main character in that narrative, but there are lots of other characters. There's doctors and hospice workers and attorneys like myself, and we're all part of the process, but we're not the main character in, in the narrative. And I think this is something that you and I have talked about before, is uh, how, how odd it is to think of a conversation in which the main character is going to drop out of the story at a certain point. They're not going to be able to participate anymore. So you have to put yourself in a position of gathering as much information as you can about the individual themselves and what their wishes are. But you also have to get a sense of what the family situation is, um, what is the exact nature of the um, physical and mental ailments that they're suffering from. So, I mean, I think that's a really important uh, uh shift and this idea of of thinking about death as something that stretches out over a longer period of time kind of changes the the ball game that's such an interesting metaphor this idea of death being a process but perhaps comparing it to a play and how there are elements and players in that process this play and it makes me think then that perhaps if if we extend that metaphor and think about how we as individuals can be the playwright that writes the script in some way of our own process of dying. Mm -hmm. And not only that, recognizing that, of course, that we may be the main player, uh, the star in our own mortality, but at some point we have to exit the stage and the play will continue. And it just seems fascinating to think about that, um, dare I say, that that performance in, in that process. And it can be pretty gruesome, obviously, but it's also one that we can take some control over if we think about it in, in those terms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's good to concentrate on, on who the main character in the narrative is, because oftentimes other people's needs and considerations sort of intervene on the conversation. And, and that's perfectly understandable. I mean, I think the 
the main sort of co-stars, if you will, of the narrative would be the children. Mm. Um, and children often have very definite views about what they want to happen with their parents. I mean, and sometimes their intentions are perfectly honorable. They want their parents to be around long enough to be grandparents to their children. Um, or, you know, they want to maybe have time to, uh, you know, to have certain conversations that maybe they were never had bef- that ne- they never had before, um, resolve some, you know, anger that might might be looming from past interactions and sort of smooth things out to the point where a person can die peacefully and feeling like they they did what they needed to do. They had the conversations with the people that they wanted to, and they were able to choose their own method and and uh, um, manner of exiting this life. But in saying this, this doesn't sound like the norm. Is it fair to say that we are not in a society where it's typical for people, as they move towards uh, the 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 older years to take control to plan or to map out how they might want that process to um, proceed both in the build up towards the inevitable and and then how other things are managed within that that period of time well yeah i mean one interesting thing to think about is um you know i think people often think quite understandably that you know they sort of want the doctor to be the primary source of information and so they want to have this moment where the doctor says okay, there's nothing more we can do, time for you to say your goodbyes. Well, the fact of the matter is that there's always something more that a doctor can do, always. It, whether it's, you know, painkillers or, or, you know, treatment of the various conditions, whether it's the lungs or the liver or, or fluid buildup in the, in the extremities, any of that kind of thing. So it's not as if you're ever going to have that, that crystal clear moment uh, where you, you, you know that, that, you know, what's going to happen and that it's going to happen in a short period of time. I mean, Doctors often feel uh, pressured by families and also by their own professional ethics to continue to offer as many solutions as they can possibly think of to, you know, to get this person, you know, whether it's a couple weeks or a couple months or, or, or even longer. I mentioned that you have a specialty, amongst other things, in elder law, and I'm wondering what elder law means and, and what that means in terms of your day-to-day practice. Well, elder law is, uh, you know, a kind of expanded version of what we think of as estate planning. You know, everyone goes to see a lawyer when they want to, you know, compose a will and determine who's going to get their house and their property and all that kind of stuff. But what elder lawyers do is really much broader than that. We're we're not just focused on the will and the transfer of possessions. We're we're interested in all of the issues and all of the kinds of legal tools that there are to deal with end-of-life situations. So we have health care powers of attorney. We have living wills. We have, uh, I actually brought with me a wonderful document called Five Wishes, where people can basically uh, exp- express their views about a lot of things that don't necessarily come up in conversations with doctors. So I'll just read the, the different parts. You know, uh, the kind of medical treatment that I want or don't want, how comfortable I want to be, how I want people to treat me, and what I want my loved ones to know. Now, these are the kind of things that don't necessarily come up in the conversation that you're having with your doctor and maybe not even with your family members. So in a way, the role of an elder care lawyer is to kind of direct attention to these issues, make sure that everyone realizes, you know, what's, what's ahead, um, and make sure that they have, the, you know, the tools and the emotional and psychological equipment that they need to deal with it. Um, you know, another area that's that perhaps people don't necessarily know about is um, the area of guardianships of 
folks have become incapacitated. Now, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be elderly to become incapacitated, but most of the people who become incapacitated, it's, it's related to their age. And so over the last uh, um, year and a half or so, I've worked with six different seniors um, in, um, in their end-of-life situation where I was, ac- I was asked to become their guardian. So I wasn't just a lawyer advising the family, because in some of these cases, there literally was no family. So I sort of stepped into that role and, you know, there's always, there's always some issue to be dealt with or some conversation to be dealt with. So I recall, you know, several months ago, um, one of my uh, clients was, um, he was about to be put on hospice, and he had an appointment with his palliative care physician uh, at the Veterans Hospital, and, and we went there, and the, the physician explained to him, he, he couldn't simply go into the hospital every time something went wrong, because eventually they'd get to the point where the thing, whatever was going wrong was, was sort of incurable. And um, so we, he, he was, at first his idea was, well, I want to push ahead as long as possible. I want to live as long as I possibly can. Um, but then by the end of the conversation, he said, well, you know, I think if we could just have one last try, one last hospitalization, one last attempt to conquer these various physical conditions that he was dealing with. And if, if past that, it, it's it becomes clear that none of these measures are going to work or be successful in, in extending their life, then we would shift into more of an end-of-life mode. So dealing with, I mean, it seems sort of interesting. We were literally bargaining with each other. Well, you know, is one more hospitalization enough, or do you want him, do you want him to try twice or maybe three times? Um, and it was a really important step to actually get him to to focus on what his life would be like given the the prognosis that was out there you know he's he's still with us uh going strong um as a matter of fact we just arranged for him to uh have an outing with his his girlfriend um he's getting to leave the the nursing home and they're going to go out and uh have dinner and see a movie it's going to be their first date uh for a couple in a couple years outside of the nursing home so that's a wonderful thing you know i i think sometimes when we talk about death and we talk about planning uh, uh, around what kinds of legal, medical, and, and family interventions or, or considerations we might want. I, I think we forget that really what we're doing is, is planning life. It's just we're planning for a particular phase of, of that life. And it, it, it seems very heartwarming to hear a story about someone uh, planning for um, uh, what essentially is just a date night, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds wonderful. Yeah, you never know uh, what it's going to be. I mean, I, I was reading about a case recently where um, a woman had become estranged from basically her entire family, and that was one of the reasons why she was seeking out assisted suicide, because she said, I don't have any sources of happiness in my life right now. But uh, at the point where they were actually you know, uh, administering the, the drugs that allowed her to end her life, she had in her in her hands, you know, a photograph of herself with her son when he was a baby, a photograph of herself with her grandchild who she hadn't seen for a long period of time. Um, so it, it's, I think people don't always recognize how important a role it, personal relationships play in this and, and how even a neighbor who is willing to stop by maybe once a day, maybe a couple times a week, that that constitutes a relationship which actually gives a lot of people just that one more extra reason for for wanting to live longer. 
you know, I think that's a wonderful thing and that you always need to have your, you always need to be investigating whether those those kinds of things are out there, things that would bring a little bit of an incremental increase in happiness. But at the same time, you have to respect a person's autonomy. And if they keep saying to you, well, you know, this measure that you took was wonderful and this was great, but I'm still ready. <laughs> I'm still ready to die. If you get to that point um, with a patient or a client or a friend, uh, I think I think it's important uh, to to acknowledge their wishes and at, at a certain point say, okay, we're we're not going to worry that this person is maybe just in a particularly sad state and isn't necessarily thinking clearly. Um, you know, we're 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 going to stop trying to find reasons to work around this person's wishes, maybe not necessarily against them. Um, and I think you do. You hopefully will get to the point where there's a kind of consensus uh, among everybody involved. I mean, uh, as I mentioned to you, my my father passed away a few months ago, and I was actually kind of amazed at the process where you know my converse, my conversations and my mother's conversations with the doctor and the hospice nurse and the people at the nursing home where he lived after months and actually three and a half years of struggle in dealing with my father's condition, the end uh, was relatively peaceful in the sense that, you know, the doctor called us at the beginning of October and said, you know, your father is is failing. Um, he's lost over 10% of his body weight in a month. Um, he's lost his ability to eat, and pretty soon he's going to lose his ability to breathe um, from the progression of the dementia. And he passed away three weeks after he went into hospice, which... You know, and I was there, and my mother was there in his last 24 hours of life. Um, and that was a, we were very fortunate that the process unfolded so smoothly. And in cases where there are families where it's not unfolding quite as smoothly, I, I often try to step in, and, and whether it's talk to doctors or talk to children or maybe point to some new document that might, might help clarify things. That's, that's the role that I try to play. You're listening to the show Lives. I'm in conversation with David Thompson. We'll be back after this short break. Gonna see you again, I'm sure To that time, little man, I'm nauseous. Your girlfriend's pregnant, the Lord's gift. Almost lost my faith that was started. like having your life. You are listening to Mind and Soul 101.3 FM. Now I'm childlike waiting for a gift To return when I lost you I lost it Once, one, let go to get one Lose some Kali, I lost Sorry, I'm a champion Kali, you're a champion I lost one Welcome back. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to the show Lives. This is Stuart Chittenden, your host. I'm speaking today with David Thompson. Uh, David, we were just chatting uh, before the break, and you mentioned a couple of phrases that I I think is worth maybe uh, looking at a little bit more uh, closely and maybe drawing a distinction. You you mentioned the phrase assisted suicide, and I I think sometimes people worry that in planning for their um, end-of-life care, really what they're talking about is some kind of proactive uh, activity towards death. And I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. But you also mentioned the word autonomy. And that also seems to be a very, very important part of how we plan for what is inevitably uh, going to come and, and how we are perhaps 
proactively involved in crafting what we want our life to look like when perhaps it gets difficult for us to actually do so. And I wonder if you might speak a little bit more about why we should uh, step into the benefits of end of life planning um, and what the facets of that mean and perhaps what they don't mean, maybe some of the um, some of the unfounded fears around end of life planning. Uh, well, I, I guess what comes to mind, first of all, is not so much unfounded fears as, as founded fears. And I think one of the issues is that, you know, for a lot of families, by the time they start to delve into these issues and start having these kind of conversations, it's often too late. Um, maybe the person is already uh, suffering from dementia, and at a certain point it becomes clear that they're just not capable of participating in the conversation. They're not capable of communicating their views to you. And that's a tragic situation um, because, you you know, we we're talking about autonomy, and I, I believe that one aspect of autonomy is the right to choose your own time and manner of, of exit from, from this life. I mean, there's been a lot of argument about this over the years. I could go, go way down into the weeds about, you know, Supreme Court holdings on uh, whether there's a fundamental liberty interest uh, under the 14th Amendment in, uh, you know, choosing your death. Um, the Supreme Court has basically said, no, there is no constitutionally protected right to die, but states can regulate uh, in some fashion. So just dealing with that issue and realizing that you know, in a way, how it all unfolds isn't to a certain extent dependent upon where you live. Uh, I mean, there are several states and actually several countries that have been, you know, they've allowed assisted suicide and they've developed the kind of framework and infrastructure that are necessary to make it work. So, you know, in most cases, um, you have to get uh, an opinion, usually from two physicians, sometimes even three. And so this isn't something that this isn't something that, that someone is deciding on their own. You know, they're, they're, they're talking to multiple physicians. Um, oftentimes they're talking to specialists in whatever condition they're dealing with, but they're also dealing with, you know, talking to hospice workers and that, that kind of thing. And the, the irony about this is that I think sometimes we see, we see these two things in opposition. We see, on one hand, working to, to treat every medical complication that comes up, and we associate that with prolonging someone's life, perhaps unnecessarily. But in reality, uh, and this is, this is kind of a startling fact, that they've discovered that people who are recommended for hospice, where you have this extra level of service, uh, and there's a, it's, it's a slightly more nurturing environment to be in hospice. And as a result, many people who go on hospice, their condition improves to such a point that they get taken off hospice. Um, and that's you know, and that, and that the statistically people who are on hospice don't live any shorter period of time than people who are out there pursuing every medical uh, intervention that's possible. So I think you don't, you shouldn't necessarily see those things in opposition, and you shouldn't necessarily think, oh, by uh, you know declining you know such and such medical treatment for my parent or my family member, I am automatically hastening their death. That's not necessarily the case. Um, and I think people also, until you've been in the situation, it's hard to believe just how interventionist some of these procedures are. Um, I mean, one thing that gets talked about a lot with these, with these, you know, older folks who are often quite frail is, you know, if we say to them, well, you know, you might want us to, you know, do chest compressions to, 
you know, bring you back to life if you need some, you know, assistance with resuscitation. But oftentimes, just the act of doing chest compressions shatters ribs and, you know, can create its own set of uh, complications. So it's, it's not even necessarily the case that, that it's automatically clear what specific thing you need to be doing in, in any given situation. It takes, it takes someone who knows the patient very well, um, usually a family member, and, you know, also these professionals in these various positions who are all sensitive to, to what's going on and to the needs of the person and the family involved. What are some of the challenges in making plans for end-of-life care and, and then how, how those plans once made are actually implemented? Well, I mean, one thing you have to allow for um, is the possibility of someone changing their mind. And so there have to be some kind of stopping points or, or points where you pause along the way and make it clear to the person, like, okay, are, are you sure this is the course you want to take or maybe, you, maybe you're feeling differently about it? And those, those decisions can be influenced by all kinds of things. I mean, I was just reading a case study of a woman who uh, shortly after becoming pregnant was diagnosed with lung cancer. And she had this horrible situation. I mean, the, the, the idea was, you know, a lot of the doctors said, well, there's no way you're going to live to see your baby through t- term. Um, and that turned out not to be the case. But that's a situation where this was not an elderly person. This was, you know, a young person. This was their first child. Um, and you can sort of understand in that situation that, you know, someone would want to do everything possible for the sake of the child. Um, and for the sake of their relationship with with the child, um, so they're you know they're every situation is is different, and oftentimes I try to serve as a kind of conduit among the different people involved, often particularly between parents and their children, because um, it's very easy I think to kind of when a person becomes you know elderly and frail and maybe you know, prone to confusion, it's it, it's easy to understand why certain family members, particularly children, would, would decide, I'm going to take control of this situation. I know you well enough. I, you know, I, I know how you feel about the family and what have you. And all of that is completely understandable. But there, as I, you know, as we've stressed throughout this conversation, I mean, there is a point where you really have to focus on the needs of that specific person. Um, and often that means trying to talk to the children and say, you know, it's time for you to accept this reality because your parent clearly has. Um, you mentioned that the families, naturally, uh, we've also talked about the doctors, but I, I imagine implementing these end-of-life plans at uh, whatever stage. Um, also, maybe it's sometimes confusing or d- difficult just with the bureaucracy of, of um, the healthcare provider too, who probably has a first instinct towards intervention uh, but perhaps that isn't what the person in question has actually um, stipulated. Yeah, I mean, lawyers spend a lot of time arguing over the various documents involved and which documents take precedence over the other. I mean, if you've if you've um, signed a healthcare power of attorney, making your child your you know your decision maker, but you've also filled out you know something like the five wishes document where you've stated you know some desires which might you know which you're healthcare power of attorney might disagree with. So arguing about, I should say discussing, uh, which document should take precedence over, over the other, that's something that, that uh, lawyers talk about quite a bit. 
Um, there's even activities sort of percolating right now in the Nebraska legislature about how to how to deal with those kind of situations. Yeah, I mean that that as a lawyer in those situations, I mean part of what makes it interesting is that you're you're spending a certain portion of your time not really being a lawyer. You're being you know, you're being a friend, you're being a listener, you're being um, an expert. If you're somebody who's been through this situation with dozens of clients over the years, that does give you a certain perspective because, you know, individual families, they're very locked into what's happening with their particular family member right now. Um, And it's different in every case. So um, oftentimes, whether it's a doctor or a lawyer or, or whoever can come in and sort of add a bit of perspective based on the number of different uh, um, patients and clients that they've dealt with over the years. What draws you to this work? I, mean, I would imagine that on the one hand, it can be very fulfilling, but also mm-hmm. it sounds to me incredibly emotionally draining. Well, it's interesting. Um, my, I, my family structure was sort of interesting in the sense that all my grandparents died f- relatively young. Um, this was the period when you know everybody was a heavy smoker and ate steak you know, five nights a week. Um, but my great-grandparents' generation, hardy farmer folk, they all lived into their 90s. And one of my great-grandmothers actually lived to be 103. So my father and certainly my mother, too, had to sort of step in with these, with their grandparents, my great-grandparents. And so it was some, it was very familiar to me from a young age, the role that my father played in terms of taking care of my great-grandmother and her two sisters. And so I more or less kind of stepped into that, those shoes, um, as my father became, you know, as his own health declined. And so it's, it's something that's always been part of my life. And uh, I think, you know, at a very young age, I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to do this if it's just a matter of fulfilling family obligations, if I'm sort of trudging, you know, my way through all this. It's like, no, I'm actually going to do what I can to have meaningful, deep relationships with these people um, and not talk to them about just when's your next, doc- next doctor's appointment and what do you want me to get you for, from the grocery store, but tell me about your childhood, you know, tell me about your first love, tell me about you know, your, your spouse, um, are there things you wish you had done in your life that you didn't get a chance to do, are there things that you did do in your life that you, you look to as moments of real happiness and fulfillment. Um, and so even though it took several years for me to sort of make the transition into being a lawyer, when I did, it was very clear to me um, that that was, that elder law was just something that came pretty naturally to me and where I felt like I was able to make, make a real difference. Um, and perhaps, you know, to a certain extent, break out of the stereotype of the lawyer who really just wants, you know, wants the document signed and notarized and, and that's it. Um, that's never uh, been my position and it's never been the way that I've acted with, with regard to any of my clients. So, For people that haven't really given much thought to this, may, maybe there are people like us maybe in, in the middle phase of life, uh, maybe there are some people listening who are in a, um, a later stage of life, if they've not really been thinking about this, but now perhaps have been prompted to do so, what sorts of recommendations would you have for people just beginning to step towards broaching this subject with themselves and their family? This is an area where I think the role of the doctor is particularly important because uh, the doctor is the one who's who's going to have the information about, you know, 
just what is the likelihood that I will survive this particular course of chemotherapy or, or, or what have you. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of studies that, that sh demonstrate how doctors are often hesitant to make, you know, to be to present all this information with, you know, the utmost clarity because they feel, you know, they feel that, that you know, they want to they want to give the family reasons to be hopeful uh, as much as they can without, you know, um, being, you know, completely inaccurate. So they oftentimes aren't quite as forthcoming about the actual percentages of, of you know, the survivorship and all that, that kind of stuff. So, so people can be undertaking treatments that really only 15% of people survive, and they've, you know, invested all of their, uh, you know, all of their concern with this particular treatment, hoping that that's going to be the, the magic bullet, and, uh, you know, it rarely is. Any particular surprises as you've gone through your career? Um, surprises. Uh, um, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by the, just the variety of people that I've gotten to know, um, by visiting various, you know, I, I visited a dozen different nursing homes and, and assisted living facilities in, in, uh, the Omaha area and just getting to know the different people there. I guess one thing that I would say is a genuine surprise, has been a genuine surprise to me, is just the large number of deeply concerned people. You know, every nurse, every uh, physician's assistant, every receptionist, every hospice worker, every, you know, um, social worker, when people are, especially if, they, if they're in a facility, there's just so many people around who are trying to stay on top of the situation and, and deal with each change as it comes and communicate it as best they can with uh, family members. I mean, I, I, I know that in the case of my father, for probably six months before he actually went into hospice, every time we would talk to the doctor, we'd say, don't you think he should be put on hospice? Don't you think he should be put on hospice? Isn't that the best thing for him? And the doctor kept saying, no, I don't think he's quite at that point yet, but we'll know when he is. And sure enough, it was clear to all of us that that was the point. And, you know, as I said, it, it, it coincided, you know, pretty closely with his actual death. And it all happened in about three and a half weeks. So we are in Nebraska. You're, you are practicing in uh, the state of Nebraska. But you've mentioned that there are, uh, clearly there's a tapestry of different uh, laws that apply uh, across the country even across the world, um, but certainly down to the state level. Is there anything that you uh, think from a legal perspective is a primary concern? In, in If the legislature did one thing in 2017 uh, to make the situation better for people uh, in, in an elder state of life, what might that be? Uh, well, one issue uh, which might seem like a small issue, but it's actually quite significant, is the role of um, EMTs, emergency medical technicians, the people who come to your house in an ambulance, if you call them, uh, those those folks in most cases are bound to do whatever they can to help you survive, and they're not bound by any of these agreements that exist. Those are for those are in hospital agreements. Usually, they apply to the to the doctors and other people in that facility, but they don't apply to the person who happens to drive the ambulance between the home and the hospital. And so we've been uh, 
number of lawyers and nurses and nursing home administrators have been talking over the last year or so about um, that small change, which is to to make it so that EMTs are bound by those kind of agreements in the same way that that doctors are, because if if you haven't addressed that particular gap, and you think how many people end up you know being transported from their home to a hospital in some crisis situation, you know that's if if that's your first case of you know entering into the medical system, and the first thing you encounter is this. Uh, this sort of wall where you know we're not allowed to you know over overrule you know our obligations as healthcare providers um, you know and this is I've talked to a number of EMTs about this and they're 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 basically happy about the situation too they don't want to be the person that does those chest compressions that break the ribs which often lead to even more misery than whatever the primary medical condition was. I've been in conversation today with David Thompson. David is a lawyer with a specialty in elder care regarding issues that more commonly confront senior citizens. Uh, David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. This is Dialogue, the part of the show where guests talk about our week's theme. This week's theme is death. Uh, with me today is Jeanette Taylor. She's a native of Omaha, Nebraska. Jeanette currently serves as the statewide administrator of children services for Lutheran Family Services. She founded a community-based nonprofit, Impact One Community Connection, in 2009 and served as its executive director for four years, focusing her energy on the marginalized youth and young adults in North Omaha. She attended undergraduate and graduate school at the College of St. Mary, earning a master's in organizational leadership and also earning a master's in negotiation and dispute resolution at Creighton University's School of Law. Hello, Jeanette. Hi, Stuart. Uh, also with me is Amy Amather, librarian at Omaha Public Library. Uh, she teaches part-time at Metropolitan Community College and is the host of Whatever Mathers, currently on hiatus. She loves art, yoga, and culinary history. Hello, Amy. Hi, Stuart. Uh, Diana Martinez is also here. She is the Film Streams Education Director. She is currently working on a PhD in film and media studies at the University of Oregon. Diana also writes about film and television. Her work has appeared in Slate and The Atlantic. Hello, Diana. Hi, Stuart. And finally, but not least by any stretch, is Keisha Holloway. She's a social selling butterfly at LinkedIn. She has a bachelor's degree in marketing, a master's degree in organizational leadership, and is a graduate of the Interface Web School Full Stack Java course. Keisha is a cancer survivor. She loves developing relationships and embracing human relationships. Hello, Keisha. Hello, Stuart. So uh, death, uh, obviously a morbid topic, uh, but I think it's one that we typically ignore very often. Uh, before 
personal reflection on this subject, uh, perhaps a broader social view. Uh, it seems to me that we live in a society that denies death. And what I mean by that is that we seem to hide from openly acknowledging it in our cultural discourse, unless it is, you know, some banal quote we see on Instagram or, you know, some other form. So I'm wondering, how do you perceive the subject of death as it appears in our public dialogue and discourse? I think that the thought about death is always evolving for me. Wow, it's such a complicated conversation. So yes, we definitely need to talk about it more. It um, recently experienced a huge loss. Um, Renee, who was uh, the chef at Dixie Quicks, and when he was in hospice, uh, you know, Rob kept Facebooking about the experience and the love story. And, and it was actually an amazing expression of like how you kind of say goodbye to somebody you love of so many years. And it was beautiful. I think it was probably the most beautiful way that anybody could have like said goodbye to their love of their life. And one, my friend Donna, I have a friend Donna Huber, who's an acupuncturist. She takes, she talks about death all the time. And one of the things that she commented on one of the posts is, or to, about Renee, it's like, it takes, it's okay if Renee is tired in hospice, it takes work to die. It mm -hmm. takes a lot of energy to die. And I thought that was so interesting. I love that she said that. And it was, it was like, it was great to acknowledge that. I have a really interesting uh, love affair with death. I know that sounds weird. Um, but being, uh, I have a big family, so we have people that die all the time. And uh, in addition to that, like being at Impact One, we had kids who were murdered like constantly in the summer specifically. So we would get calls from, you know, the hospitals to come and help manage the ER. And it's the toughest thing ever to have to tell a mom that their kid is dead. Um, so I had all those crazy experiences. And then I was in a convenience store and I saw a young man be shot and he died right in front of me. So that's hard. Um, and I went through that for about four years. And then uh, a lot of people know I left Impact One because I had two people in my family who were killed by two of the kids that worked for me. And the second cousin that died, I was really close to him. And so it was hard because he was in hospice care at 34. And it's like, oh, you know, to watch that somebody slowly die over three months was not an easy thing to do. Um, but I think I'm okay with death because I see it so much. And I'm just so happy. Like, I have kids who've died at 15, 16, and to, I'm not going to date myself, be someone from the 70s who's still here. I think it's a, it's a blessing. So we know it's coming. We just have to embrace it and go with it. I think for me, um, what really strikes me about death is, so my dad passed away about six years ago, of cancer. He had cancer for like a couple years. So we knew that it was going to happen. They told us it was going to happen. But I think what was so strange is because people don't ever talk about it, that it is this really huge monumental event, but it's also filled with so many silly things of the everyday. Like my dad died really early in the morning um, at home. And then, like, we called the people to come get him, and they did. And then it was breakfast time. And so we 
went to McDonald's, like McDonald's drive through And you're just like, they have no idea what just happened. And then you're just like, you keep eating and you keep like mm-hmm. listening to music. And we watched a movie because what else is there to do? But like you're watching a movie and then you break down crying. But like it, it's just it, that the like banality of death, like mixed in with this, the fact that this huge thing had just happened was really interesting to me. And it's still something I think about all the time, like how weird death is because it's this huge thing that changes your life completely. It changes your relationship with other people completely. But then like you just you keep doing the things that you did every day. And it's just so weird to me. Well, for me, I think um, I think death is beautiful. And I think it's it's how we are. We leave our legacy behind. And um, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with it, but funerals for me are very, very touching and a very beautiful experience for me. And it wasn't that way until my my little sister passed away. She had lupus and she died at 24 years old. She was very, very young, but she fought and she was very strong and she was very vibrant and loving and compassionate and she wanted to be here and when she passed away she was in the hospital she was in intensive care and honestly it was nothing new for us it was something that happened every now and then with her so when she passed away it was very shocking for me but when she had her when when we had her service her funeral and all these people came to show their respect I mean, the church was packed. There was no room to sit. People were in the basement just to come and say goodbyes. And um, from that day on, I've grown very um, appreciative of death and the whole process of it from, you know, just being supportive of loved ones who've lost someone and bringing by food, um, checking on them you know, weeks after the funeral has taken place because people have a tendency to forget. Those are the most difficult times to grieve. Um, But I think we have a tendency to forget how powerful grieving is and um, how powerful death is Um, and to not be afraid of it because we are all going to go through it. It's a very beautiful thing um, once it finally happens and it's, so touching to me when I attend funerals and I just sit and I listen to all these people come and talk about all these memories that they share with this person. And then we go on, like you said, and we live our lives like it didn't happen. Um, So for me, death is something that I have embraced for the last 12 years of my life. And it's something that um, I see as a very important milestone in all of our lives. Am I in a room a studio here with a group of the odd ones out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, only because I, I'm I'm not convinced that our public discourse embraces the beauty no, or the no. inevitability oh, no. of of our mortality. Um, and it makes me wonder if perhaps it's not necessarily the moment of death that we refuse to reflect upon as a society as much as we don't like people that are dying. Mm-hmm. And that maybe means as soon as you hit retirement age, you are on that slope. And and 
at that point, the discussion of our impending doom is something we can't we can't face. So I don't know if I'm confusing maybe the two things, dying or death. It's actually really interesting. So yeah. I was just um, at uh, Thanksgiving at my boyfriend's house and we had this exact conversation. Like, can you be dying if you don't, if it doesn't end in death? And it's an interesting question because it's like, what is then dying? Like, mm. it, does it have to lead to death? Like, can you be dying and then like recover from almost dying? Like, is that a possibility? It's oh, like yes. giving a wedding gift and then, and then they, they get <laughs> yeah. divorced quickly. Like, do you take the gift yeah. back or? <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the interesting things for me is that when my dad was dying, I had just moved to a whole new place. I had just started grad school. And, you know, everyone was like talking about their family and all of these things. And it's just really awkward to be like, oh, like my dad is dying. Like, how do you like bring that up? People get awkward. People mm -hmm. get uncomfortable, possibly even more so than if you just say like, oh, he passed away because then they just say, I'm sorry. And they never have to ask why. And they kind of assume that you've dealt with it. Whereas like the process of dying is like it's an ongoing emotional struggle as well as, you know, the body actually like breaking down. I think it's definitely a state of mind, especially for me, since I was I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer three, three years ago. And when I was diagnosed, I didn't think of it as a death sentence. But if you Googled everything about my symptoms and the way my scans looked and the you know it was grim frankly and my doctor told me don't google anything mm -hmm. i got medicine i got everything that we need to get you through this so honestly i never i mean it was terrifying frankly and it was you know very i knew it was going to be a battle i was going to be fighting for my life but i wasn't going to accept that i was going to be dying and same person another person could get the same type of diagnosis and you know, die a few months later just because you accepted that. So I think mm -hmm. that there's definitely a, a, it's definitely a state of mind in terms of whether you accept it or not. And I think that there is definitely a difference between death and dying. And when, like a lot of the stories we talked about were people who knew, like they were in hospice, so they knew that they were going, like things were bad mm -hmm. and they only had a limited amount of time. Um, the biggest fear, I think, for people is when they don't know when it's coming and they're like, well, I have all these things I want to do. What if mm -hmm. I can't do them because I die? Mm -hmm. um, but for those of us who've experienced like hospice and what that really is mm -hmm. and like me, I literally had palliative care come in and tell me and my cousin's mom one of you guys have to tell him that it's okay to let go. And I'm like, I'm not telling him that shit. Like, yeah. he's, no, I don't want him to go. And we get so selfish. I'm like, I don't want him to go. Yeah. But it was, like, hard. And I'm, I remember it, like, yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, because when you know it's coming, you know that you are dying, you either have a choice to be like, yes, I'm going to embrace this and roll with it and make sure it's the best few moments of my life remaining or you're like I don't want to die and I'm going to fight and I'm going to struggle mm -hmm. so when Renee was like you know I'm ready you know because it's hard it's hard work to die it's not easy because we want to be here mm -hmm. and so I just remember like yesterday like looking at my cousin's body this is a man who was six eight like 400 pounds when he passed he was 168 pounds and to watch him go from here to there and I was like I was I knew it was selfish, but I'm like, please, Lord, just let it happen so he can stop suffering because he suffered so bad and it was so. So, you know, you use the word 
um, suffer. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. I, I'm surprised that more people don't take steps as they move through life to control the degree of dignity they can afford themselves. So why so few people, for example, put in place uh, living wills or um, some kind of you know, attorney relationship so that when perhaps they maybe lose their capacity to mentally function, that someone else is making sure that their wishes about how they want to be treated and, and, and maybe to expire match the dignified approach they want in their life. My grandmother... <laughs> who died, I think she was 103, 104. She is an interesting character. She did, when she, she had planned her funeral out 20 years before she died, it was quite amazing. Mm. Like, this is what I'm wearing. Okay. This is the program that we're going to have. <laughs> like, super organized. And so I've been having these talks with my parents about, okay, so you're getting up there. And my dad does have stage four esophageal cancer, and he is dying. Mm-hmm. Um, he's fine right now, but he's getting treatments. Um, mm-hmm. But they, you know, even his doctor said, you probably have a year. So I've been talking to my mom about this because my mom is very into genealogy. And years ago, she's like, we're having a headstone so everybody can find us later on. <laughs> it's like, okay, mom. And then now she's like, oh, I want to be cremated. And, yeah. and I've been trying to have this discussion with her. Like, how do you all want to be buried? Do you have medical directives in place? They have a will in place, thankfully. But I really want to see that medical directive in place. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what do you want? We want to honor you. But mm-hmm. she's not ready. It's like you said, Stuart, she's not talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because she came from this woman who had it organized 20 years before she died mm-hmm. and paid for. Mm-hmm. So so I can't leave the subject of death without um, talking about homicides. So if, if there were... Um, this is not an easy situation. I don't want to reduce a complex and complicated situation to just a few bromides about let's do this and everything will be okay. But that being said, are, are there just a few ingredients that might set us on a more hopeful path as a community? I'm a person on the outside. Like I worked for a nonprofit agency um, and it was crazy for four years. I dealt with kids dying and trying to support families and raising money for funerals and calling people out at meetings, Uh, like all of that. Like, if you really support community, help this mom bury her kid. You know, I've done all that. But it wasn't until my two cousins were shot and murdered, like within a month of each other. And I'm like, you know what? I'm over it. I'm out. And I walked away from Impact One and literally left the city. Like, I'm like, I can't even do this right now because we think that this is so normal for teenagers and young people to be shot every day. And nobody, I don't think that the interventions are as strong as they could be because I've seen it work in other cities and I know that we could do more. It goes back to what does it really mean to be a community and what does it mean to hold people accountable for what happens in your neighborhood? Um, What does it mean to be a, a resident in a community when you allow crazy nonsense to happen, when you know somebody's gunning for somebody else and you don't intervene um, when you know you have somebody's ear and you can talk them out of doing something horrible but you just let it unfold we see this every day and it's like little things that irritate me it's not because little things end up being big things but then you have the corner store j and j somebody walks into the store and they rob the store two days in a row i grew up on 40th now i'm like you really gonna let these people just walk in and rob the store that is the sad part. We don't really have a community, and that impacts 
everything else. That's why it's okay. Somebody get oh, somebody else got killed today. It's not okay. And that's because we don't have a true community here in the African-American community. I'm going to say that. Until we, and by we, I mean the larger we, mm -hmm. embrace the entire city as a community, right. it doesn't seem that we can make as much progress as we should be making. But part of the challenge with that is Omaha historically is divided into north, south, and west. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that. Like, that wasn't African-Americans deciding that that's how it's going to be. That's redlining and some other stuff that's systemic that we have no control over. Um, so when I say African-American community, it's because I feel like you have to keep your house in order. Somebody out on 168, they're not worried about what's happening on 24th Street. So it's like you have to have those checks and balances in your own community to make sure that other people see like, hey, like <laughs> this is a real issue and this is our community, the bigger Omaha metro area. I think we don't do a good job of checking stuff that needs to be checked. And nobody in West Omaha is checking for some kid at like, you know, North High School or Central who's beefing with some other kids. So we have to have our own accountability for our kids and what happens in our communities. And then as a the greater Omaha area, we need to be real about how we marginalize North Omaha and South Omaha sometimes, and we isolate those communities too. That impacts homicides and other things, but we don't, it's not a collective community here. So as we begin to wrap the discussion, um, any final, or perhaps I should say terminal thoughts uh, <laughs> from, from each of you on the subject of death? My final thoughts are Death is a part of all of our lives, and it's important that we reflect and learn from those experiences. I think we choose how we die most of the time. So if you are concerned about your children and the people who you will leave behind, it's important that we live a full life, one filled with love and compassion and dignity so that our legacy can live on through the people that we touch every day. My final thought um, is that it's uh, it's interesting that the conversation seems to swing both ways, right? That there's either not enough discussion about death so that people, you know, don't put those directives in place that they need, don't have wills, aren't prepared for when it happens. But then there's so much conversation about it that, um, you know, the deaths of black kids and Latino kids just becomes an everyday thing that we see in the news and that politicians and whole government systems don't really seem to care. Um, and so, you know, by normalizing talk about death, hopefully those two extremes can somehow meet in the middle and people can be comfortable with facing their own mortality um, and also be concerned enough to care about the lives of other people in their community that you know, isn't so far away because we're all here. And I just, I, I think uh, death, it's death and taxes, the only things that are <laughs> gotta pay your taxes and you have to die. Um, we're born dying. I think we, if you experience a lot of death, you understand that, you know what that is. Um, but it's difficult when it's like a homicide or a young kid, it's like, you know, and we can't make that the norm. But we also can't be afraid of death because it's inevitable and it's like the Lion King. It's the circle of life. You you live, you experience, and then you, you go back. With me in dialogue today have been Jeanette Taylor, Amy Mather, 
Diana Martinez and Keisha Holloway. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.